From the Milton Metz studio in the radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host WFIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. This week, we're going to be taking a look at the sexual assault allegations around Brett Kavanaugh and what they mean for his nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court. How should society react to these allegations against him and the allegations of past sexual misconduct in general? We have a lot of ground to cover today, and we have three guests who are going to help us do that. Uh, In the studio with us are Zoe Peterson, director of the Kinsey Institute Sexual Assault Research Initiative and an associate professor at Indiana University. Steve Sanders is associate professor of law at the Indiana University Maurer School of Law. And Jennifer Drobach Drobach is uh, joining us by phone. She's the R. Bruce Townsend Professor of Law at the Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law. If you have questions or comments, you can give us a call at uh, 877-285-9348, news at indianapublicmedia.org. Twitter, uh, our Twitter handle handle is at Noon Edition. You can also call locally, 812-855-0811. So thanks, everybody, for being here with us. Uh, This is uh, quite a topic, and I think I'm just going to turn it over first to to Jennifer. Jennifer is joining us by phone from Indianapolis, and just... Talk about you know the, the the time in history we are now and this this particular allegation and give us some observations to get us started. Well, I think the time that we're in now really changes the nature of our conversation because we had the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas hearing in 1991, which really put sexual harassment on the national radar for for really the first time. So what's happening now is slightly different because we are informed, um, even those people who weren't alive in 1991 have heard of Anita Hill and certainly know of Clarence Thomas. And so we are informed by what happened back then as we approach Brett Kavanaugh's uh, confirmation hearing and the allegations by Dr. Uh, Blasey. So, Zoe Peterson, uh, you know your sort of overview, immediate reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, I think um, I think sort of on one hand, uh, this is really familiar territory. So, a woman is coming forward and saying that this powerful man um, was sexually violent toward her, um, and as has happened to many women in this position, she's. Uh, you know, she's disbelieved, uh, her experience is minimized, her character is, is attacked as a way to sort of undermine her credibility. Um, and so I think in many ways this is similar to what we've seen for decades when women have come forward and reported uh, sexual violence. But I think on the other hand, uh, we're at this really critical historical period because the stakes are so much higher. Uh, the person she's accusing may potentially end up um, with a lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Uh, so although it's familiar, it also feels really like a, a sort of critical turning point potentially in terms of how we think about um, women's accusations of sexual assault in this country. And Steve, how do you view this as, when you think of it as a, you know, a lifetime appointment mm-hmm. to the Supreme Court? I mean, how does that, that raises the, the stakes a little bit. Well, sure. And, and I think in terms of the implications for the, for the Supreme Court, for its credibility for its role in our system of government. Um, What's happening, what's unfolding is just a disaster, not just because of the serious allegations against Kavanaugh, but almost more so because of the way the the Senate Republicans and President Trump have chosen to respond. There there is no timetable or deadline for a nomination like this, as we saw. You know, a seat stayed open after Justice Scalia died for more than 400 days. Yet, you know, we have this insistence that this has to get done right away. Um, the Senate Republicans have given no persuasive explanation for why they say an FBI investigation should not be done. And at the same time, the Senate committee's ability to do a fair and impartial investigation was sort of uh, called into question a couple of nights ago when its chief counsel tweeted, you know, hashtag confirm Kavanaugh, not deterred. You know, we will get this done. Um, You know, and, and you have the sort of optics of octogenarian white men who through age and experience, you know, we can expect will be conditioned to be skeptical of these allegations or to minimize their importance. I think 
Um, you know, if Kavanaugh were truly independent, he would say he welcomes an FBI investigation. But I think he's afraid of President Trump, frankly. Um, he showed that when he refused to criticize the president for things the president had said about a, sit a sitting Supreme Court justice. So, you know, a final thought, I guess, to get us started. Uh, you know, in this case, I think if there remains uncertainty about the veracity and what really happened, there's a strong argument to, to be made for resolving that uncertainty in favor of the Supreme Court's credibility and legitimacy. Brett Kavanaugh has no entitlement to this job. Um, and, and if um, put, putting him on the Supreme Court would create a cloud of uncertainty that will dog him and will dog the court, then that's something the Senate shouldn't go forward with. Mm -hmm. That just seems impossible with how politicized. I mean, the Republicans absolutely want to make sure that they get this pick, and you know that obviously could be in jeopardy after the midterms. Um, sure, and, and, and let's be candid too. I mean, the the, the Democrats would like you know. Are, are, this doesn't take anything away from the credibility of the allegations, but of course, the Democrats are content to slow walk this. Everybody recognizes that we could be in a different situation if the Republicans lose the Senate in the midterms. You mentioned the FBI and investigation. And is that something that is typical for the FBI to investigate such claims? It's absolutely typical. The FBI uh, does a – the FBI doesn't do a criminal investigation in the traditional sense, but the FBI always, uh, for every position that Brett Kavanaugh has held in government, has done a background investigation where it's gathered facts and talked to people in his past and in his life. When Anita Haley merged with her allegations against Clarence Thomas late in the process, the FBI investigation was reopened, something the Republican senators at that time endorsed, the same Republican senators who are now claiming that it's not done and it's not necessary. Um, I saw a statistic last night that just in the in, in very recent, like the last year or two, a number of FBI investigations have been reopened in the confirmation proceedings of lower court judges when something new came to light. So it's entirely customary. So Trump tweeted something last night that said, you know, why wasn't this done? 36 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, really, what would an FBI investigation look like right now since this was something that happened? Well, and, and, and Jennifer or Zoe may want to yeah. talk about the dynamics of what caused this not to be reported mm -hmm. at the time it happened. But right. um, but I think, you know, again, the it, and a fair point is also that, you know, the FBI in doing these investigations doesn't necessarily draw credibility determinations. It doesn't draw conclusions of law. It simply interviews people and tries to put facts before um, the Senate decision makers in an objective a fashion as possible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, why we should be afraid of that, you know, I don't know. But also, again, the FBI doesn't independently sort of make some decision about whether or not the allegations uh, – are credible or true. Well, Jennifer? That's a, mm -hmm. And I do want to ask Zoe about sort of the, the, the meaning of why didn't she come forward earlier and talk about later credibility and fresh complaint and things like that. But I do want to sort of bring this back into a more lay understanding, and that is this is not a criminal trial. This is not a civil trial. The standards for proof do, of those forms do not apply here. This is a job interview. Mm -hmm. Brett Kavanaugh wants a job. And his sort of one of the first round employers has nominated Brett Kavanaugh for the job. And so the bigger board called the Senate Judiciary Committee is investigating it for a confirmation to be voted on by the larger Senate. You know, who will hire Brett Kavanaugh for a lifetime appointment to the country's highest court. So I think we need to um, have all of this background in consideration as we look at whether or not that we have the most qualified person for this job and whether or not, you know, no matter your political views, I'm sure there are other ultra-conservative, very bright judges who could fill this slot. And the question is, do we have the best candidate? And I think that's the, the background we should approach the rest of the discussion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that's a great point. And I think not only is he, is he applying for a job, he's not applying for a job as a dog walker or a banker or a chef. 
um, that, you know, the standards have to be different uh, for this type of job. But but I also do want to return to that that question of having not disclosed earlier because I think this does come up a lot and it's and it's used as a way to sort of undermine uh, Dr. Blasey Ford's uh, allegations. And I just want to say that you know there's there's lots of psychological literature on this. Um, it is incredibly common for people not to disclose rape, um, and and if they do disclose, to disclose after quite a long delay. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. Um, one of the reasons is because of, of fear of retaliation, much like is happening right now to, to Dr. Blasey Ford. Uh, she was likely concerned about how people would react, that people wouldn't believe her, that people would uh, blame her or minimize her experience. And in fact, that is, that is what is happening. Um, it's also the case that people are, are often afraid of um, some kind of retaliation by the perpetrator or, or his friends. And then I think the other thing that's really important to say is that a lot of people don't come forward immediately because they don't immediately recognize that what happened to them qualifies as sexual assault or rape. Um, I think a lot of people, and, and especially um, at the time when this, this alleged event occurred, a lot of people have kind of a stereotype of rape as uh, a stranger who, you know, attacks someone in an alley with a weapon. Um, and so if their experience doesn't correspond to that, if they're um, assaulted by someone they know in a friend's home and that person who assaulted them isn't, you know, um, deranged, he's a, a, you know, successful prep school um, student, uh, then they may feel like their experience doesn't doesn't count and that it's not really rape or that it wasn't really a sexual assault. Um, as a result of that, it often takes people a long time to kind of come around and realize kind of how their, their experience should be categorized. I also read a New York Times piece, and I want you to, to react to this, that talked about, you know, at the time she was a 15-year-old girl. He was a 17-year-old guy. So a 15-year-old girl is at a party where a lot of people are drinking. Mm-hmm. Something happens. She's not necessarily going to run home and tell her parents. Right. I think that's a great point. And so a lot of women um, do experience sexual assault when they're under the influence of alcohol or when they're um, at these parties, especially when they're underage, may not be legal. Um, and so, yes, there's a real risk to them uh, to, to coming forward. But I think it's important to note that, um, you know, uh, situations where you have two different people who have different recollections or different versions of what happened behind closed doors is not a situation that the law is unfamiliar with. And in those situations, you look at circumstantial evidence and other factors. Um, you know, there are, she, she talked about this with a therapist some years ago. So there's corroboration there long before Brett Kavanaugh, anybody knew his name at the national level. She's the one who wants an FBI investigation, typically a person who's worried about being exposed as a liar, which is a federal crime when you're talking to the FBI, doesn't call, isn't the one calling for an FBI investigation while the other one's doing everything they can to avoid it. And finally, there's no obvious reason for her to put herself through this hell, frankly, um, you know, if, if, if she is not genuine, if she does not really believe what, hap- what she says happened, happened. If you look at the way she's being attacked and slandered and defamed and harassed, who in their right mind would put themselves through that, even if they were a committed political activist? I don't mm-hmm. think she would. If you have questions or comments for our panel today, we're talking about the Brett Kavanaugh nomination to the Supreme Court, in particular about the sexual, allega- sexual assault allegations that have been lodged against him and how that's going to have an impact on this going forward. Give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. You can also uh, send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Steve, you mentioned this, that she had talked to a therapist. So, Zoe, I just want your opinion on that, if that sort of helps helps her case in saying, like, yes, she has talked about this before. We can show that, that this has happened. Or does it hurt it because now it's really in the public eye? And does that sort of feed into this idea that she's part of Democrats, you know, politicizing this? Yeah. So, I mean, 
I, I don't know how other people yeah. view it, but um, from my perspective, I think, you know, uh, sort of the progression she describes is very typical, that, that she didn't speak about it for a very long time. Um, and then, you know, that, that in couples therapy was when it first came out. That's often the first time people disclose is with a therapist. Um, that she then processed that with her husband and, and then went back and processed it in individual therapy. Seems very typical with how people um, often kind of kind of cope with those things. Can I follow up with a couple of points on Zoe's also is that um, I prosecuted sexual harassment cases for 10 years before I went into academia. And um, in, in some of my cases, um, not only did my clients not come forward um, you know, fairly quickly, but they waited in part because they not only feared retaliation for themselves, but they were afraid of what their husbands would do if they found out what this man had done to them. They were afraid that their husbands would become, you know, retaliatory against the, the perpetrator. They also feared for what would happen to their children. So part of what's happened in this case is um, Dr. Blasey has had to, um, you know, move her children and her family because of death threats, which only reinforces that this type of retaliation does occur and, and we should be worried about it. Finally, a lot of my former clients blamed themselves. Um, we as a culture often blame women for, you know, what was she wearing? Did she do something to lead him on? Was she, now, now I've done a book, The Sexual Exploitation of Teenagers, which shows that teenagers don't even realize that what they're wearing is not permission for sexual assault. Um, and so they accept some of the cultural messaging and then blame themselves and so are therefore afraid to come forward. But simply because you've gone against your parents' rules for no drinking at a party doesn't mean that you're bad and therefore not entitled to protection from rape and sexual assault. Uh, I, I, could I ask uh, Jennifer a question because she has some expertise or may have some expertise that I don't. Jennifer, so I, I understand from something I heard on TV last night, I haven't verified this myself, that in Maryland where this incident is, is alleged to have taken place uh, 36 years ago, there is no statute of limitations on uh, a, a prosecution for an attempted rape or an attempted sexual assault. So assuming for sake of argument that's true, have you you heard of cases that were um, brought uh, 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 that after that many years? Can they still be prosecuted? Are we facing the prospect that if Brett Kavanaugh is confirmed, hanging over his head could be the possibility if Dr. Blasey Ford decides to bring a criminal complaint to the authorities in Maryland that they could open an, an investigation of him for attempted rape 36 years ago? You know, and I will try and in my book I have a chart on the sex crime statutes of every state, and I'll try and confirm that while we're on the air. But because I, I, my radar went up as soon as I heard that this morning too, and I was surprised to hear that. Um, I was focusing on the age of consent, not the statute of limitations, when I did this chart. But I may have that. Most states um, have a statute of limitations for rape, or you know, sort of this a higher level of sexual assault um, at five or six years. Now, there has been a trend because of our new understanding of the trauma that prevents women from reporting these incidents um, that is is causing some state legislatures to lengthen the statute of limitations to 10 years and longer. Um, and I, I endorse that move. Um, there is a risk, on the other hand, that witnesses corroborating evidence may expire or um, evaporate or, you know, be less detectable. Um, so I'll try and find out, but that's a really good question. And no, to, to answer your an question directly, I have never heard of a case um, where the statute of limitations was that long and a case was brought, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, so I'm going to try and find out while we're talking here. Okay, we're going to go to a phone call. We've got Sarah on the line who wants to talk to us. Sarah? Nope, we don't have Sarah on the line. 
All right. So uh, why don't we just take our, our break just uh, about 30 seconds early. It looks like we've got some phone calls coming in now. So you're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. From the Milton Metz studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live. And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't find anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. We're talking about the sexual assault allegations around the Brett Kavanaugh nomination and uh, what they what they mean for his nomination. And uh, we're getting into a lot of other issues today as well. We have three guests: Zoe Peterson, director of the Kinsey Institute Sexual Assault Research Initiative, and an associate professor at IU. Steve Sanders, an associate professor of law at the IU Maurer School of Law here in Bloomington, and Jennifer Drobak, uh, the R. Bruce Townsend, professor of law at the IU Robert H. McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. If you have questions or comments, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or one 285 we uh, are also taking questions, news at indianapublicmedia.org and Twitter at Noon Edition. Uh, I wanted to ask, you know, about differences because I think there are some 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 very specific differences between the Anita, Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas case and what's happening now. Uh, so, Jennifer, could you sort of walk us through that? Uh, sure. Let me just going back though um, mm-hmm. to the last question that we broke before the break um, the statute of limitations on a civil lawsuit is seven years from the juvenile's 18th birthday so that would mean the statute was passed for a civil case but for criminal cases in the event of a, a felony sexual offense in Maryland there is no statute of limitations okay. so um, but going back to the um, differences with the Anita Hill um, matter, okay, so we've talked about whether or not um, sexual harassment and sexual assault is understood um, in the general sense of a cultural understanding as, a, as opposed to just a criminal offense. Um, and I think in the area of hashtag Me Too, that really brings it uh, to the fore. So I think some of the senators are going to be very careful in their questioning of uh, Dr. Blasey. However, um, this, the allegations are much more serious than what Anita Hill was bringing. Yes, they occurred much longer ago and when these uh, people were teenagers, but that doesn't mean the fact that they were teenagers does not mean that they were not serious offenses or that they somehow can be um, shaken off or dismissed. Um, so it goes to credibility, it goes to uh, character and fitness for the job, as well as um, for whether or not someone can comply. I think most 17-year-olds know that it's not okay uh, to try and rape someone or to grope and, and sexually molest someone. I don't really think that we have any debate there. So that would be um, a couple of the points. And the question that I have now is whether or not witnesses are going to be allowed. Here we, don't, we aren't even seeing an FBI investigation, which we did during the Anita Hill hearing. So I think that's another important divergence in these two cases. I, I think it's also been um, somewhat widely recognized that um, some senators in the Anita Hill investigation didn't acquit themselves particularly well. Joe Biden, who chaired the hearings, has said that in, in retrospect. And um, people like Orrin Hatch and Charles Grassley, who are still on the committee, um, you know, didn't uh, a, a, a appear very sensitive to Anita Hill or very receptive to her allegations. It's also been in the news that the Republicans are now negotiating for the possibility of hiring an outside female 
female lawyer to do the questioning of Dr. Blasey Ford. They, at least their staffs, get the idea of the optics here, of the potentially how bad it would look for people like Grassley and Hatch to be probably stumbling through and putting their foot in their mouth, the questioning of somebody like this under these circumstances. Um, so you know, take that for what you what it's well, worth, that, too. But, but that also raises the point of, at least for me, of the complete cowardice of the Republicans who are charged with the advising consent and, and on this nomination. And so, you know, if they have to, isn't it interesting that they have to hire a woman to do the job that they can't do? I mean, that, you know, to be completely sexist about it, it's the, the optics of it are shocking. Our phone numbers again are 812-855-0811, News at indianapublicmedia.org is uh, where you can send questions and you can follow us at Noon Edition. I think I want to ask about this, these gender differences, too. And we have three women on the program today, and I guess my question is, you know, there are a lot of people who are saying, oh, I don't believe her. This didn't happen. I guess as a man of a certain age, I really believe her. I mean, and when people are in high school, a lot of stuff goes on that, um, you know, shouldn't be going on. So I guess I want to get your take on, on this. Yeah. I mean, I think I think um, – when it comes to allegations of, of sexual assault, um, often men don't believe them, but often women don't believe them as well. And I think uh, really both men and women stand to lose by admitting how frequent uh, sexual assault is. Uh, so for men, that's that's a scary prospect because it means that um, – you know, men that they're friends with um, have have likely done these behaviors that are really awful. And for women, it's really scary to admit that because it means that they're vulnerable to, to sexual assault. Um, so I do think there are, are, are gender differences in the likelihood of believing victims. But I think um, in many cases, um, women don't believe uh, victims who come forward as well. Mm-hmm. I'll also say, too, that I, I do think it's important to acknowledge that although men clearly perpetrate rape and sexual assault more than women. Women do sometimes perpetrate uh, uh, sexual aggression. Um, and recent research suggests maybe a bit more even than, than we thought in the past. So I do think sometimes that's important to acknowledge because we can really fall into stereotypes about men's sexuality as, as assertive and aggressive and women's sexuality as sort of always passive um, uh, if we only talk about men as perpetrators and women as victims. Excellent point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Should Kavanaugh's age that this allegedly happened, should that really – should that be a factor, do you think? We've, we've heard a lot made of that. You mean the age at which it occurred mm-hmm. when he right. was 17? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I'm a psychologist and I wouldn't be a very good psychologist if I didn't think people were capable of change. Um, so I, I do think people are capable of change. Uh, we know from research that most men who rape do so multiple times. Um, but also there is research to suggest that some men rape during one period of their life and then and then stop that behavior. Um, so I think, you know, does this mean that he, you know, if, if this was true, does it mean he has always been a rapist? I don't know that that's necessarily true. Um, on the other hand, I agree with what Jennifer said that, you know, this isn't just a youthful indiscretion. You know, I think we a lot of us probably did things when we were adolescents that we're not proud of, that we wouldn't want to be judged on. But but most of us didn't um, attempt to rape someone, that this isn't just, you know, um, uh, drinking a beer when you're not supposed to. Uh, it's a pretty serious allegation. And I I guess, you know, when people sort of dismiss it as, as youthful indiscretion, I wonder if, you know, if there was credible evidence that he'd um, committed armed robbery as a teenager, would we be calling that a, a youthful mm-hmm. indiscretion? I kind of think not. The Court, other, the yeah. other thing we should um, acknowledge here, and I think this is an important fact, that got raised by Dr. Blasey is that uh, it wasn't even just the attempted rape. It was that he held his hand over her mouth during the assault. That, to me, suggests he knew that what he was doing was wrong, and he didn't want her screaming, and he didn't want anyone coming to her rescue. 
And that, to me, is, is almost worse because it, if true, it confirms this problem, um, that he knew it was wrong. Now, teenage brains, we know from the neuroscience, and I talk about this in Sexual Exploitation of Teenagers, teenage brains aren't finished formulating until basically the mid-20s. So they are learning, they are changing and growing. The uh, prefrontal cortex area of sober second thought is coming online. But we all, again, know pretty young uh, that this type of behavior is is wrong. And um, I think that should go into our calculus as we understand that this is not a criminal matter, not a civil matter, but a job interview. And and just to sort of bring this back to the present, if – if we assume, based on the evidence that we will hear, that it is more likely than not that this happened, but if we also take the position that it was a sort of youthful indiscretion and it shouldn't necessarily categorically disqualify somebody for a position like this for sake of argument, um, we would still be left with the fact that he has lied about it. Again, if it, if it were true or if we conclude it was more likely than not true, we have to grapple with the fact that he has strangely right. denied it, which right. in its Itself should be independently disqualifying if, again, we reach the conclusion that he is lying. Mm-hmm. I think there's also a cultural or a tradition in American society that you are innocent until proven guilty. And so Kavanaugh is innocent until proven guilty. I would remind everyone that's a criminal law standard, but it also necessarily means that his accuser is lying. So I'd like for us all as a society to take the beginning uh, position that they are both telling the truth and then do the fact-finding, do the credibility analysis as this job application moves (laughs) forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then decide if he gets the job. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then hold, hold the people who give him the job. Whether you know, or not they I, should keep their right, job. Right, accountable. Right. <laughs> the latest I've heard is that she's still – they're still figuring out under what circumstances and how she might testify. So what might that look like, Steve? Well, it, it remains to be seen. I mean what we say now could be different you know, two hours from now. It, it, it's – it's really interesting whether she holds the cards in this situation or not. Have the Republicans calculated that having this out there and if it's not dealt with and confronted somehow that, that Kavanaugh will definitely have a cloud over him? Um, so in that sense, she you know is she in a position to sort of run the table and dictate terms as to her appearance and the conditions for her appearance or – is it possible that the Republicans are um, committed enough to getting this done that um, they will play hardball and they'll say, look, you know, if she doesn't show up, we're just going to move forward? I, I honestly don't know. But right now, you know, I think what we're seeing behind the scenes is another thing that lawyers are familiar with, and that is a sort of negotiation and a try to, trying to figure out who has – um, who has more power to get what they want? Uh, uh, you know, both sides want to achieve some kind of resolution that that helps them or doesn't hurt them. But uh, who has more power to do that is a is an interesting question right now. So McConnell told a group of people. It looks like just a few hours ago. I'm t- Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Quote: "We're going to plow through this." Um, I guess I'm just wondering, like. Logistically, is this possibly going to be her and Kavanaugh at the same time testifying and these committee members trying to figure out where the truth mm-hmm. lies? Well, that, that, that seems to be the most likely scenario okay. right now. He has said he'll be there. I, I think in the end, um, Dr. Blasey and her lawyers will decide that it's necessary for her to be there as well, maybe even if she has to accept some terms that she doesn't want, like there is no FBI investigation and, and maybe somebody else other than the senators leads the questioning. Um, she has said she doesn't want Kavanaugh in the same room. She has said this is interesting. She said she wants him to go first. Um, That would not be typical in a situation where you have an accuser and somebody responding to an accusation. So I think we'll just have to see. And I think 
you know, uh, America is going to be glued to its TVs seeing this unfold next week. And, and there will be a sort of conclusions drawn, I think, about the overall atmospherics of this and the credibility and, 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 and whether this kind of hits you in the gut in a certain way. So, again, all that, I think, just makes it impossible to predict um, with any, uh, with any res- sense of responsibility where we're going to be a week from now. I, I think as, you know, as Steve talks about that process, uh, as a psychologist, I'm kind of struck about how difficult this thing we're asking Dr. Blasey Ford to do is, that, that we're asking her to come forward and talk about what is, uh, assuming it's true, a very traumatic event in front of the Senate Judicial, Judiciary Committee, which I would be scared to talk about the weather in front of, of that committee. Um, and she has to talk about this traumatic event and then also in front of the entire world. And then there's this question of, does she appear credible? And I think, you know, from a, a psychological standpoint, the things that we expect um, from a victim as evidence of credibility are not always, you know, sort of what people experience. So, you know, if they're credible, we expect them to be you know, overcome with sadness and fear. But but many victims, you know, experience emotional numbing. And so when they talk about their trauma, they look flat or, or kind of unemotional, or they look very angry and, and irritable when they talk about their trauma. And so I, I think about, you know, sort of this judging her credibility just based on kind of her emotional expression and worry that, that people's judgments might not really be based on, on you know, what science says is, yeah. is if, reactions. If you're... Oh, go ahead, Jennifer. Oh, I was just going to also highlight the analogy that's used, plowing through. That's a really unfortunate concept when the allegation was raped. And when we're talking about whether or not Dr. Blasey is going to be allowed to speak after someone held, allegedly held their hand over her mouth as they were plowing through her or attempting to do so. And the whole cultural analogy of this playing out metaphorically is extremely unfortunate, but I think also, again, shocking. And, you know, in this age of social media and cable TV and political polarization, it's probably fruitless to even try to think about this in more objective and institutional terms. But I think if you're, you know, if you're a partisan who's just committed to the ultimate project of hashtag confirm Kavanaugh, then you'd probably see this as, well, you know, letting uh, Dr. Blasey come forward as a form of grace. Okay, we're going to let her tell her story. Um, but, you know, if you're concerned, again, about the credibility of the court, about the institutional role of the Senate, um, a, a, about the, what we want in Supreme Court justices, I think you have to say that, no, we should definitely want to hear this evidence and be able to evaluate it. No one's doing her some favor by letting her come forward and tell her story, and she shouldn't be treated that way. Again, our phone numbers are 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Zoe Zoe Peterson, I wanted to ask you about your research. I I saw that you um, are particularly interested in investigating experiences of unwanted, coerced, and non-consensual sex from the perspective of both the victims and the perpetrators. I wanted to ask about the perpetrators. Yeah. So my research, I really started out uh, researching victims and their reactions to sexual assault, but um, increasingly felt like we needed to better understand perpetrators because that's where intervention is is really necessary. so that, that's kind of my interest now is sort of better understanding uh, what are some of the correlates of, of sexual aggression, perpetration, and, and what are the patterns and who are the individuals who perpetrate these behaviors. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you've found that could, is sort of relevant to this conversation we're talking about with, with Mr. Yeah. Kavanaugh? I mean, Kavanaugh? so I think um, – I mean, w- one thing that I believe based on my research, th- there's not as much research as I think we need on perpetrators of sexual aggression. There's much more research on victims. Um, but if you kind of look at all the research that's been done, not just mine, but the, the research as a whole, I think – I mean, I think one thing that's worth saying is that there's not a sort of single type of, of sexual perpetrator. But there are definitely some kind of pretty consistent correlates. Uh, so – Men, uh, and most of the research is on men uh, as perpetrators, Uh, men who perpetrate um, 
are are more hostile toward women, have less empathy than men who don't perpetrate sexual aggression. Um, they're more likely to b- believe kind of uh, rape victim blaming myths so that, that victims somehow invite sexual assault um, by their behavior. Um, they're also more likely to belong to peer groups that support or condone sexual aggression or that treat women in very kind of sexualized uh, ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of those kind of factors are consistently okay. found. Okay. Steve, you were talking about how we, you know, we should give her a, a chance to speak. But really, what else, what should the next steps in this whole process be? And the second part, is there a way to do what we should do before the midterms? Well, I, I mean, again, if lawyers believe in following precedents, precedent would indicate that the FBI should should conduct interviews and give its report to the Senate, uh, to the committee before the committee's investigation, the committee's own hearing happens. Um, that at least um, adds to the perception that the committee cares about getting to the truth rather than just rushing through this. But I, I, I guess I'll avoid the question only by saying once again, uh, you know, assuming that we're going to hear from both parties live um, next week, and I and I hope we do. Um, what the appropriate next step is after that um, is is dependent, I think, on what happens. I mean, there's a possibility that. Um, Dr. Blasey will be will, – will fall apart, that her story won't hold together, that, that um, they'll be able to poke ho- holes in her, in her um, a, a, a recollection and she will and, – and, and it will be concluded that, OK, then now we're going to go back and we've dealt with that and so they'll move forward with the confirmation. But I uh, go back to something I said at the beginning. I think if there remain serious and unresolved questions about whether this happened or not, if, if, if she is judged to be credible um, based on her testimony, based on the circumstances and so forth, um, then I, I would say once again, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, this is, this is not something that's being taken away from him that he already has or that he's entitled to. Um, the credibility and the, the legitimacy and the integrity, I think, of the Supreme Court would call for resolving doubts against him, res- resolving doubts in favor of not letting yeah. someone go on the court who is clouded by these serious allegations. Yeah. Jennifer, do you want to add to that? No, I, I, I agree with Steve completely. Um, we, we need to ha- have a legitimate process that the United States and, and, its, and its people can feel confident in. And uh, this departure from precedent is is disturbing and it's distressing. And it, it further highlights how um, women in our culture are not taken seriously, are retaliated against, and do not have the weight and authority that they should in raising concerns, in you know, sounding alarms about what's going on. And I think, you know, Diane Feinstein's getting a lot of flack for not uh, coming forward with the memo earlier, but it's also been clear if you read sort of the backstory, she was trying to see whether she could investigate this and get more information without an FBI investigation, which she felt she might not get. Um, and she was trying to respect um, uh, Dr. Blasey's wishes in not coming forward unless it was absolutely critical. And, and obviously it was. Let's just, you know, be frank about something here, and that is there are inevitably politics involved in this, and yeah. any kind of delay on this um, helps the Democrats. Democrats think they could retake the Senate. Now, it remains to be seen whether the Republicans would be brazen enough to try to push this through in a lame duck session. I'm not enough of an expert on that process to know whether they could do that or not. But uh, sure, again, let, let's be candid. I think most Democrats on this committee and most progressives genuinely want to get to the bottom of this because it's the right thing to do for the Senate um, and, and for the Supreme Court and for the country. But again, you know, let's just be totally honest that uh, there will be some hypocrisy on both sides and there will be self-interest on both sides. It's clear that, again, any delay in this um, opens the possibility that the Democrats will have an opportunity that they couldn't have dreamed of a week or, you know, a couple weeks ago. And that is the possibility of having a vacancy on the court um, be open and, and being able to have a, Rep- a Democratic-controlled Senate hold it open. 
I just think it's important to at least not uh, not ignore that, not ignore the politics of the situation. And to follow up on that, I'm curious, Steve, what you and and the other panelists think. So, if it, this does get stopped, what about the next nominee? What about the scrutiny on the next nominee? Well, it depends on the timing. I mean, again, uh, if we get late enough in the process, if this goes on for some. More, some more time, it's possible there wouldn't be enough time left in this Senate before a new Senate is seated next January um, to act on another nomination. But there will eventually be one. There will eventually be one. And, and, and I think it's uh, increasingly likely that if the Democrats control the Senate, they will decide what's fair for the goose is fair for the gander. Uh, president Obama was entitled to make a Supreme Court appointment when he was president and Republican Senate wouldn't let him do that. I think it's entirely possible the Democrats will mount an argument that uh, for various reasons, President uh, Trump is under a cloud and he's, you know, uh, 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 for various reasons, I think it's quite likely they'll justify um, um, holding the seat open and not letting President Trump make another appointment to the court. Is there, um, you know, in thinking back of history of other Supreme Court nominees, I mean, I know there's there's always been a political element of some sort. Is this a new level? Are we in a new age when it comes to the um, politics involved with Supreme with naming people to the Supreme Court? I, I, I'm curious for for the other panelists' perspective on this too. I, I mean, my sense is what makes this different, if nothing else, is. Um, political polarization, cable TV, social media. Um, there's great. There's much more awareness, much more saliency around this issue. Many more people have their team, and they've just decided their team is you know right or wrong, uh, and and are less interested in actually um, consulting the traditional news media um, in and in, in, in making assessments of facts and drawing conclusions for themselves. I think that's a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think that um, this raises a couple of, of very interesting um, points in that I, I wonder how strong our democracy can remain with this type of polarization. I think we're going to see um, nomination um, uh, polarities uh, in the future. And we may need to have a constitutional convention to take into account um, the changes that have occurred in our culture to update our processes to make them um, more uh, smoother for the modern era. Um, I also want to go back to another point, a very good point that Steve raised, and that is is that the Democrats' um, desire to stall the process for the midterm elections. That also could come back and bite Democrats because um, the argument already has been raised that they are needlessly stalling this and this is another stall tactic. Unfortunately, um, if that is accurate and the Democrats are doing that, both Democrats and Republicans are failing to take these allegations seriously and to um, engage in the process in a meaningful way. I would love for you to comment on that, Zoe, just this idea that here's this woman who is saying she's a victim and she is caught in this political back and forth. Yeah. I mean, I, I often think that when I, I hear people discuss this case is that she has just been a political tool for, for both sides, mm-hmm. really, I think. Um, and uh, yes, so I think, you know, for I suspect for her, this is a you know, very personal, uh, deeply felt experience. Um, and, and many of the people she's working with have, have a different agenda that's not really entirely about her and exclusively about her. Jennifer, I wanted to go back to, to what you said and ask if you could say a little bit more about, you know, the, the culture changes that we've been undergoing and, you know, how we navigate that going forward in, in situations like this. Right. I think this raises so many really interesting and important points. For example, I think this also, this, this whole, the allegation um, that uh, Dr. Blasey uh, Ford raises against um, Judge Kavanaugh um, highlights the need for comprehensive sex education in schools and the whole notion that we need to educate everyone better on consent. And uh, what what the lack thereof signifies. Um, 
While sexual assault and harassment are first and foremost abuses of power, um, consent and an understanding of how that power abuse is played out um, can be um, can be dealt with uh, in part um, by educating young people about sexuality, consent, and the lack thereof. So that's one thing. Um, secondly, we now understand much better than we did uh, 30 years ago that um, sexual harassment is wrong, it's illegal, it's an abuse of power, and as we're looking to put someone in a position of ultimate judicial power, this matters. Um, and so um, just as it did in 1991, so does it in 2018. Um, and finally, I think we also, uh, we mentioned Joe Biden earlier. Um, one of Joe Biden's um, vice presidential campaign or, or jobs was to come up with the It's On Us campaign, which means it's on all of us, every single one of us, to deal with and eradicate sexual harassment and violence and assault. And so we do that by paying attention to the hearings, by voting, by taking people seriously, whether they're the accuser or the accused. Um, and it means that we are all engaged to the eradication of the abuse of, of, of people in our culture um, and across the world. So that's just a few points. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And we are out of time. That was oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Don't be sorry. I'm Jennifer Droback, who is a professor of law at the IU School of Law, the Robert H. McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. I want to also thank our other two guests, Steve, Snyder, Steve Sanders, Associate Professor of Law at Indiana University's Maurer School of Law, and Zoe Peterson, Director of the Kinsey Institute Sexual Assault Research Initiative and Associate Professor at IU. For producer Patrick McGurr, engineer Mike Pashkash, and co-host Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org.